Welcome to the Off the Charts Football Podcast. I'm Matt Maticharian of Sports Info Solution, joined today by a smorgasbord of SIS. It is what used to be known as the Jamboree, currently known as Jab Bats minus a mat. It is Alex Vigderman, James Weaver, and Bryce Rossler. With us, we've also got Brett Barnes, our injury analyst. He's in here to talk about grass fields, turf fields, and actually answer some questions because there seem to be more questions than answers on that front lately. And of course, we've got our producer, Justin Stein, with us. So we're going to break it down. We're going to start off with some of those injury topics, but we're going to get into Lamar Jackson, who Bryce Rossler wrote about on SportsInfoSolutions.com this week, as well as some of these other thoughts that we've had on 3013.com and on our own website. But without further ado, welcome back to the show, Brett. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being back on here. So... I want to dive right in and I want to talk about it. Obviously, Aaron Rodgers got injured. Everybody talked about it for a day. And then it's like, we just move on to the next thing. I was going to make a political comparison and I'm going to pass on that. But we kind of saw him get injured. We all have uh, one or two days of an uproar. How can we keep playing on turf? The Meadowlands is dangerous. And then we move on and it's forgotten, but not by us. So I wanted to ask you about what you wrote because you took a look and you dive back into something that we've been talking about for years here. And it's what the actual numbers say about injuries that happen on grass fields versus turf fields in the NFL. You're right. When you make that statement, when we see kind of this injuries happen on turf and there's the, the few days go by when everyone has an uproar about it and then it dies down, it happens again, uproar about it. And You know, nothing really seems to get done by the NFL, but a lot of teams and a lot of executives and players have voiced their opinion on their feelings of playing on turf. And, you know, the biggest thing that I thought when I wrote the article was having, you know, seven of the top 10 fields uh, that produce the most injuries that are turf. So, I mean, I think right there, uh, an easy way to just look at it, showing that the um, turf fields are just more dangerous in general. The most surprising thing that I found was the amount of head injuries that happen on turf. 0.86 per game happened on turf compared to 0.76 per game on grass. And Anthony Richardson, you know, two weeks ago, landed on his head in the end zone after he scored a touchdown. That was a turf field and concussed and missed the, the game last week. So I just think that the numbers are all telling you that more injuries just overall happen on turf. I don't necessarily think that if Aaron Rodgers was on grass that his Achilles wouldn't have torn, but I do think that overall, you know, the numbers say that grass is definitely safer. Well, let's talk about that a little bit more because I think these are really interesting numbers and they they actually sort of diverge from the storyline a little bit. So the numbers pretty consistently show, they showed it from, from 2017 to 2020. And as we revisiting it, adding in 21 and 22, you see more injuries per game on turf fields overall. You see, like you said, seven of the top 10 fields in terms of injuries are turf fields. Seven of the 10 least, the lowest injury rates are grass fields. So you see that too. But beneath all of that, I think a lot of people in the medical fields, trainers, things like that would ask, okay, but what about the issues that we can really prevent? What about the soft tissue injuries? And then specifically, like you're saying, all the outrage is about this Achilles injury. Well, is it the Achilles, the ACL? Do these catastrophic sort of lower leg injuries actually happen more often on turf compared to grass? And the numbers don't indicate that. 
No, they don't. I mean, when you're just looking at lower leg injuries, 2.39 per game on turf, 2.35 per game on grass. So pretty comparable, a little increase on turf. But then when you go and look at non-contact injuries, there's actually a little bit more happen on grass. And the same thing when looking at non-contact injuries just to like the lower leg. So I, I, I don't think any, there's any real correlation between these soft tissue injuries or lower extremity injuries based on the playing surface. I think it's just more that the, the turf is a harder surface underneath overall. I always think about like, you know, those grass fields when a guy gets his head driven into the ground, he comes up, he's got grass sod all in his helmet. When you do, when that happens on turf, it's it, nothing like, you know, there's not a lot of give, there's not a lot of softness to the surface. And that's where I think more of the injuries kind of tend to happen. And we see all this technology with helmets in the last, you know, however many years, how amazing helmets have become, but, you know, not fixing the surface that they're playing on, you know, can still lead to a lot of problems. Yeah, it is pretty, it is pretty shocking that like, if you look at soccer, like they just don't do it. And now there's a whole thing where, where they're trying to figure out how they're going to handle that so that they can get messy playing on some of these fields where they currently have turf and like. It's a whole big controversy. You know, over the summer, they actually, in Carolina, they they switched out the turf and brought in grass just for some soccer matches. And then it sounds like later this year, they're going to stick with the turf. And there are some players that just won't play. Heck, I think it's possible that David Bakhtiari is doing that right now. Just he's not saying it out loud. Like, like Bakhtiari's like, I don't know. No, he's got a chronic, chronic knee issues that he is just on the injury report every week. And that, you know, I'm sure that definitely plays a part into it. Travis Kelsey on his podcast, like he says that, you know, he's body, whole whole body feels different when he wakes up after a game that he plays on turf. You know, he can feel his knees and joints just being a little bit more stiff, you know, in the fourth quarter of those games. So, I mean, players are pretty outspoken about it, about how they feel about it. And it's funny you bring up Carolina because, you know, they brought in grass to have messy play on it or whatever. But just recently they had grass and they changed it to turf. So it's just, it's funny that it, it seems like they're going backwards, but they'll accommodate some players and not, not, not all, but not all yeah. players. It's pretty weird. And that, I think that's as damning as it, as anything here. I will go back to one thing you said with the lower body injuries happening on, on grass at a similar rate to turf. I think that you end up seeing different types of sort of what you guys would call the mechanism of the injury, right? Whereas you might get your cleat caught in the turf and that might be what leads to it. Grass is more likely to be an uneven surface. And so all grass fields aren't created equal. I know James has watched enough Pittsburgh football games over the years to know that that grass isn't always the answer. But if you can actually maintain your grass field, which I think should be something we can do in 2023. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is you probably are robbing Peter to pay Paul in terms of the types of lower body injuries that are going to happen on grass versus turf to a certain extent. But it's those overall injury rates that are that are super alarming to me. I totally agree. And even if you look back into like the the Super Bowl last year, that was played on a grass field. But a big storyline coming out of that game was Chiefs and Eagles players are slipping all over the place. We have to change cleats at halftime. You know, why is this like happening? You did, right? Yeah. I, so the, but yeah, so I think the maintenance thing is really important because for sure one of the reasons that teams will lean in favor of turf is because of the cost to maintain it grass right and so i think that there would need to be pretty strong assurances that teams have to 
maintain that, whether it's funds that are allocated right, for it or whatever. Bringing me down this road, tell me <laughs> how it makes financial sense. I'm not saying turf. To be clear, I'm not saying that that they should do turf as a result of it. I'm saying that they should have the combination of enforcing grass fields, but also enforcing a certain level of maintenance. Well, you're uh, also going to maintain turf fields, right? Let's yeah, it's it's just a di- it's a different kind of. It's thing. way less though. Like, there's manpower that I think has to be more involved with grass fields, where it's like watering it and making sure it's yeah. not overwatered, making sure it's getting enough sun to right. to dry out. Whereas turf, it's just kind of like make sure there's nothing screwed up. With it. Okay, it's not broken. Good. Yeah, yeah. The other problem is that a lot of these stadiums that are being built now are mm-hmm. sort of intended to be multi-purpose. It's it's really hard to have a concert at Jerry World on a Saturday night and then turn around and have the field ready for a home game on Sunday. That's it's like actually not true with the with the the amount like if you're building a new stadium, we have the technology to do this. We've seen multiple stadiums where they 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 bring the grass in and out above the turf that that stays inside all the time. And I'm not saying that like I'm not saying it's cheap, but I'm saying like you're using public funds to build this stadium anyway. Can you please protect my players? I hear what you're saying that like that's not that's not but like the real reason why Jerry's world is turf is because Jerry wants turf. Like I think I think that's really what's going on here. And I think that all of the financial arguments really go out the window when you start to think if you're having a third of a player more getting injured per game here, right? Over 17 games in a season, we're talking about multiple players getting injured that wouldn't have been injured because of this missing more days and you're paying them their salaries either way. So like in what in what world is this like a financially savvy thing to do? Like just look at Aaron Rodgers this year. The billionaire capitalists throughout the history of America have always been very forward thinking with respect to health in the workplace as it pertains to costs for it's sure. Not a union. <laughs> it's not a very good union. It's like one of the only unions. Uh, not anymore, I guess. There's a couple of them. You think like quick turnarounds like has a like plays a role in anything like i know some fields like will hold a college game on saturday like you think if can grass get beat up multiple days in a row like saturday sunday can we get a field ready on grass or like i don't know how much easier it is to turn over a field like that for turf so i mean i think there's i think people don't realize how much goes on in these stadiums besides football games and i agree that like Grass is definitely the safer option. I just don't know how easy or realistic it is to enforce. Well, I mean, if they change the rule, like in the Premier League, where you have to play on grass, then hundred percent that would be it. Like, like I don't know. Like the part that doesn't make it realistic, I think, is the owners don't want to do it, yeah. and the players don't have the leverage. And and in collective bargaining, they're really not. So far, they haven't been willing to sacrifice something for that which is crazy to me to think that you have to make a sacrifice just to be able to play on a field that doesn't get you injured. But that's how these negotiations seem to go. I'll get off my socialist high horse now. Let's flip it forward and let's talk about what you wrote about this week on the 3013.com, Brett, because you wrote a really another really interesting one. Again, it'll touch on some of the, the research that, that Alex did on our injury risk model. So tell us what you looked into there. So I looked into kind of Wide receivers seem to be kind of hit the most so far from out of our injury risk model. Eight of the top 15 in our model have already guaranteed to miss at least one game this year. And and then I kind of dove into 
Mike Williams being out for the year for the Chargers and how that might uh, change the way they operate and how teams might kind of look to play them differently without some of their weapons on the field. I'd start with, uh, let's not bury the lead here. You you listed out the, the top 15 players most likely to be injured, uh, wide receivers most likely to be injured by the model, and seven of them are already down? Eight. Eight of them are already down, yeah. A few of them haven't even played. Christian Watson was number one on the board. He hasn't even played yet this year. Richie James is on the IR. Jonte Johnson's on the IR. A few concussions in there. And then Mike Williams is the only one so far that's been ruled out for the year, which which stinks. So we messed everybody up when we told them that Nick Chubb was uh, lower on the injury risk model than yep. expect. And then that, you know, that went really well. To, to, to his credit, it's way better than they think it was initially. So like yeah, the severity. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, right. That's what I said. So, um, you know, it shows the durability where even a, a major severe injury, he comes out of it. Not, not too bad. Not too bad. But I got to ask Alex, eight of them already injured. Is that, is that actually more than we would have predicted? <laughs> well, it's, it's more than we would predicted through three weeks, right? Yeah. Like we still have most of the vast majority of the season remaining. So like normally I think we would have expected that those guys would get hurt. Like each of them would have, yeah, so, something like that. Yeah. So if each of them has has that risk, then we would expect roughly this kind of number for the whole season. We got to keep so. those other seven guys healthy. One of them is Kadarius Tony, who has been on the injury report, every- so I don't know how how likely that's going to be the whole way. But I like the optimism, the Nostradamus model. Struck. <laughs> I think that's pretty interesting. It's a dangerous sport. It's always weird when the predictions are right because it's like, yay, the model's working, but damn, these people are hurt, and it's better when they're on the field. In terms of the specifics here, I mean, I want to dive in on Mike Williams because I thought you did a really good analysis there. What can you expect to see differently from the Chargers? with and without him? I think for the most part, they're going to run their same kind of offensive scheme and play calling, but I think the what they'll see from defenses might change a little bit. When Mike Williams was off the field last year, they saw a stacked box 8% more of the time. They played man coverage against man coverage 6% more of the time. So teams seem to be more aggressive at the line of scrimmage and you know not fearing as much of the Initial, immediate off the line of scrimmage, man to man, with the other threats that are going to be on the field, especially without Eckler on the field. I think teams are just going to sell out to try and stop the run, force the ball out of Herbert's hands quickly. Because the longer that he can kind of extend plays, the the more success he's going to have. I thought the biggest thing that I saw was Keenan Allen's effectiveness when he was on and off the field last year. Keenan Allen was a free class week; he had like 18 catches. But when he was on the field last year with Williams, he had 47 targets and caught 41 of them. But without him on the field last year, he caught 25 of 42. So even if he gets more of the target share, Herbert probably is going to be forcing the ball a little bit more and might be a little less efficient going forward. Yeah, they need a rookie receiver to step up there. Yeah, now the door's wide open for him to kind of show something. Good quarterback to do it with. Justin Herbert continues to amaze me. Bryce, you have anything to add on that front? What what you can expect with Chargers playing without Mike Williams? The A big thing for them this year compared to last year was... Herbert's ADOT jumped up pretty significantly. I know it's a small sample. We're only through three weeks of the season, but Mike Williams is their downfield guy. Keenan Allen is not who he used to be, but even then he wasn't a vertical threat. He was more working over the middle. Criticizing Keenan Allen after he put up 200 yards last week. (laughs) I don't know, man. He's intermediate. I agree that he's more of an intermediate field route runner than than a deep take-the-top-all threat. Yeah, I just I think losing their field stretcher 
hurts a little bit. It might it might dampen their ability to go downfield. Totally agree that it was the case last year too. Like Herbert's A dot dropped like a full yard without Mike Williams on the field, so it kind of shrinks the ability, or at least the amount of space that Allen and all those under other underneath receivers have to work with. I think I'll I'll bet on the difference between offensive coordinators with Kellen Moore there instead of Joe Lombardi making more of a difference than losing Mike Williams does on the A dot. I think the A dot will will stay up this year because. I think last week he 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 finally started to unwrap his shiny object and and Justin Herbert can do some stuff. Well, and also in theory, Quentin Johnston's presence is like that's the that's the difference in between the personnel last year and this year, right? Like Palmer was was there last year and and kind of you know filled in okay, but Johnston, if he can take a step, which he hasn't taken in three games so far, then that is the deep threat that replaces Mike Williams theoretically very well if he's up for the task. So I think that from an ADOT perspective in terms of like the targets downfield, at least in these first couple games, I would expect it to maintain. And the question is, can Johnston, you know, do something with that and and make it so that the Chargers can get something out of those targets? It's kind of interesting because he's a he was like a raw prospect. Yeah. A lot of physical ability. And you might expect like, okay, it's going to take him longer to like figure it out and get to know it. But I mean like how much do you have to teach him in order to say, like, run straight as fast as you can, and we're going to throw the ball up in the air to you? Like that—that's mostly his value, right? Like, so yeah, I think I think that you could see him being like Marquez Valdez Scantling type productive immediately, even if he's not being, you know, if he if he might not be first round wide receiver productive in in this first handful of games, but that might be okay. Because you're only asking him to do a narrow amount of things, maybe he has a better chance of being able to do that than like if you were asking him to run a full route tree and all that kind of stuff. And if you have Keenan Allen, like you don't need kind of what Brett was alluding to, like the pairing of Keenan Allen's skill set to Mike Williams' skill set is really important. And so just having that presence to sort of balance out the offense is enough. He doesn't need to be like a true number two receiver. Yeah, and I think the reason, like, a part of the reason they drafted Johnson too, is because of Williams' injury history and kind of the similar play style that they have. I think they would be in a way worse spot if like Keenan Allen were to be the one to go down, and they're trying to match Mike Williams with Quentin Johnson. Now it's like kind of having the same guy. So I think you know at least the the personnel is there and the skill sets are there for them to kind of operate at the same rate. But only time will tell to see how successful they are. Yeah, it makes sense there. Before we move off of kind of the injury stuff and get into Lamar Jackson, I want to go back and I guess mostly like Alex, James, more of you, the, the scientific crew that I want to ask about here. When we look into this, it's hard to ignore that the overall injury rates are significantly higher on turf than on grass. And yet, when we talk to a lot of really smart people about this, the aspects of, well, it's mostly actually the contact with ground and contact with other players where we're seeing this, not the non-contact. It's mostly the head injuries and other areas of the body and not necessarily the ACLs and Achilles. And I don't think those people are wrong. Like I don't think the NFL is lying when they they debate those sorts of things. My question is, am I wrong to really feel like yeah, I get that your job is usually like soft tissue injuries and that's what people are more focused on preventing. But if we're talking about whether or not the game of football, which has a lot of contact, is safer on grass or turf, and we see the contact injuries 
being the area where the difference is based on our data. Am I am I wrong to sort of move past the narrow soft tissue, lower body injury things that people are focused on and look at the bigger picture, or are they actually right? And what I'm looking at is irrelevant. So I think that we something that was mentioned earlier kind of, of rings true to me at least, which is that the human body is like a complex mechanism and there's a lot of like there's a lot of interactivity between different body regions and whatever and the kinetic chain and all that that makes it so that you might have a hard time explicitly tying injuries to one specific body region or of one specific type to the source of those injuries there might be a couple of sort of intermediate black box steps in the process between the thing that is causing the person to adjust differently like the the travis kelsey example of like he just feels worse right like there that could manifest itself in any number of ways in terms of potential injury risk if you're just kind of moving a little differently and that changes how fast you're going into a potential hit and harder and faster and it's a contact sport and the contact injuries are causing more causing more injuries on turf rather than than grass like Where's the where's the part where I'm drawing a conclusion that that's inappropriate? I think that the the part is that if if you were seeing the thing that you'd expect to see, it is easier to trust the yeah the the direct line. And once you see things that are not the direct line, you there's you you suddenly have like a burden of proof that you wouldn't if it was like completely intuitive. That's fair. That's fair. I I'm, I would like to see what the what the NFLPA's response to our data would be because I know the NFL has their own data and it's like super anonymized and difficult to deal with and inconsistent and that's a lot of what they have to go off of our data is of a different quality than that and you can always tie it back to the exact play and the exact player and see what was going on and I I I think that they should make the argument bigger than Achilles and ACLs even if that's their biggest concern about it I think that they they probably could be making a better argument if if they leverage some of this stuff. All right, cool. Let's go back to football. Bryce, you're breaking down Lamar Jackson. Tell us what you wrote about him, and that'll be posted on sportsinfosolutions.com for the listeners. What do you got? Yeah, so I won't spoil the whole thing because we need those sweet, sweet clicks. But basically, coming into the year, I was really excited about the Ravens offense. They fired Greg Roman. They brought in Todd Monken. They added Zay Flowers in the draft. They signed Odell Beckham Jr., who, uh, even though he's not what he was with the Giants, is still a very capable player. And I watched them hoping that I would have found reason to be very excited about them going forward. And uh, I just kind of wasn't. Like, the offense isn't really markedly different from what it was last year some of the some of like the route design is better you don't have guys running into the same area as much like they did with greg roman the spacing is generally better but in terms of like what they're doing on offense how they're distributing the ball it's very similar to last year in terms of where the ball is going like they're still a very outside run heavy team a lot of their passing game is working underneath on like west coast stuff they don't really access the intermediate area of the field and all these things were true last year so i don't really see 
like a totally new offensive system like I had maybe hoped to coming into the year. And that's a little bit discouraging. The other thing that's discouraging is not really the fault of Monken, but their receiving core is once again banged up. Like Bateman's dealing with, I believe, a hamstring. Beckham's got an ankle injury. Mark Andrews had a, a quad at the start of the year. So those those four guys have only played like 13 snaps together. So it just feels ominous isn't the right word, but it, it feels like we've been here before with the Ravens. Like they get off to constipated. the you get the word. What's the word? Constipated. What are you talking about? <laughs> the offense. <laughs> no, I'm just talking about the sentiment around the team as a whole. Like we it, it feels like we've done this song and dance with the Ravens before they win a couple games. Lamar looks pretty good. Injuries start to happen and the offense kind of sputters down the stretch. And that's discouraging because as you guys know, and, and people who have listened to this podcast before know, I've been very vocal about what I think Lamar Jackson is as a player. Like I think he's very, very talented. I don't think he gets enough credit for what he brings to that team. So I don't know. I just, when I watched them, I was a little disappointed by the lack of like a radical systemic change in the offense. Well, can I interest you, you know, a bit of a more moderate than a radical? And maybe what Monkin is doing is sort of acknowledging a few things. Number one, Lamar Jackson is known to be a stubborn dude. He definitely likes what he likes to run. Some of that they took from college to the first system that they ran with Roman. And now they've taken that. And I'm not surprised that he wants to cling to some of the concepts that he likes. And I think it's smart for Monkin to not just bring in a radical overhaul, but to do a bit of what he's comfortable with. So maybe that's part of it. I think maybe also you mentioned the injuries that have happened. Seems like they do stand to get healthier down the stretch as opposed to maybe having to deal with some of the health stuff during that time of year. Maybe they'll deal with both. You know, it's football. We don't know. But maybe as some of the change is being brought in slowly but surely, we can actually get to a point where we look back a couple months from now as we're heading into December and we're saying, oh, they're just starting to hit their stride. They He didn't change all these things immediately. He kept them more comfortable. But gradually over the time, he made the changes to the offense and they're getting healthy. Can I interest you in that? I suppose that's very possible, but I've also been hurt by the by the Ravens before. Well, you're known for regard. So, so I yeah. So I, I had sort of two questions off of what Bryce presented. The first would be kind of what Matt's saying, like to what extent are if even if we're not seeing an impact in terms of like the production off of relatively moderate schematic changes, like are these the sorts of things that you would expect? to get better production from in the future? Or is it all kind of like, not window dressing, but, but basically just like a lateral move? Just like, it looks it looks qualitatively different, but I wouldn't expect anything better out of it. That's, that's a hard question to answer because the receivers haven't really played together. We're only three weeks through the season. So I, I don't know. This, this is less about me making the point uh, like they're doomed than it is being a little uneasy about some of the hype they've garnered through 
three weeks. You sat down and you were like, I'm going to watch some Lamar film. This is going to be fun. I'm going to write a hype article about him. And then you watched it and you were like, man, this kind of looks like last year. Yeah, that's essentially what happened. And again, like I think the overall design is a little bit better in the passing game. Like there's still some weird miscommunication stuff that happens, but we should probably expect that to happen only a few games into a new offensive coordinator, especially with the guys not having as many live reps as one another as they would probably like. Yeah, last year, I, this time of year, Mike McDaniel and, and Tua were having trouble getting plays in to one another. And it's spending a little time together seems to have helped. So I don't know. I, I think that they they can get better. I'm not sure I entirely buy the argument that like it's about keeping Lamar comfortable because there are some things that Lamar does really well that they're that they're leaving some meat on the bone with. Like Lamar is a very good downfield passer. I, he ranks like fifth and on target rate on deep throws this year, and they're just not really designed to throw the ball downfield right now. I also think that the run pass splits they have. They mirror last year very closely. I know that's kind of been the Ravens' identity is the run game, but I'm still skeptical that's optimal. With this personnel, it's hard to argue, right? They've been so banged up in the backfield. Yeah, losing losing Dobbins, is that's a bit soul-crushing, and the offensive line hasn't been 100% either, but they've, they've pass-protected well enough. I just don't know that like a 55% run, 45% pass split is ideal for any team in the NFL. I don't know. Would you say it was? It was just a little bit skull crushing? Soul crushing. Not crushing. Soul crushing. A little bit soul crushing. I like that one. Just a little oh, bit. A little bit of crush. Of the soul. Not skull. Alright, let's keep it moving around. James, would you say that Josh McDaniels is more A, dumb, B, cowardly, or C, generous? I'll take A and C. If there's an option for that. Yeah, certainly generous to the aspects of letting the Steelers just take the game. I mean, I think that Pittsburgh was in control for the majority of that game anyway. So in terms of coming out with a win, I wouldn't be... They're obviously come down... They don't have the win probability in their favor, but go go through the scenario at a high level just, just in, for anybody that didn't see it. Yeah, so I believe it was, what, they had fourth and... Fourth and four or something like that within the eight-yard like eight line going in for a touchdown. They were down eight with under... I think it was under, was it under two minutes, under a minute, something like that. Two and a half minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Two and a half minutes. And instead of trying to punch it in, split a touchdown, tie the game against what has been one of the better defenses in the leagues this year, he decided to kick the field goal, hope to get the ball back and then march the ball down the field and still having to score a touchdown to win the game. I want to ask Alex to tell me what the win probability model said, but I just feel dumb even asking because... If you go for it, you have a chance to tie the game. And if you don't, you don't have a chance to tie the game. And my guess is that the win probability model likes tying the game better than not tying the game. Well, what if I told you? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so so it was one of the the worst decisions that you'll see in terms of, of win probability, but specifically from the perspective that that, like, their existing win probability was relatively low. So like they're even even with only a few minutes left in the game, like there's not that many decisions that you could make that move the needle a ton, right? Really in, in that if you're in these coin flip situations late in the game, you can have really big expected swings. That's not the case here. Like they had like a 12% win probability at the time. 
yeah, 14%. So like the fact that the decision to kick a field goal was minus five expected win probability compared to expected win probability added compared to the go for it choice is pretty meaningful because that was like almost half of their win probability at that point. Yeah, right. Like if your win probability is 90%, mm-hmm. you can make a conservative decision, sacrifice it down to 88%, but not risk dropping it down to 60%. All right, I'm right. good with that. But if you're at 10%, you got to take some risks. Yeah, it's, but it's not even you got to take some risks. Like you know, the ri- I mean, he took the risk. He risked not getting the ball back. And yeah, yeah. But you, but he, like, wait, 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 wait. he risked what? Not getting the ball back. Kenny Pickett is the quarterback. <laughs> but like you, yeah. I mean, the not, getting, <laughs> the not getting the ball back thing is, that's tough. Like they had multiple timeouts and the two minute warning. So like, yeah, you should, you should be, you should stop Kenny Pickett. Like first, first off, like figure that out. But he's probably the worst quarterback in the NFL. No, starting quarterback. No. Zach Wilson's alive. By the way, I think now's the time. We were talking about it last week. Buy your Jets stock right now because I don't think Simeon is the end, although Simeon will still raise their floor. I, you want you want to take the over on whatever that low number is right now on the Jets. Because Zach Wilson is not a starting quarterback. Can he pick it as a starting exactly. quarterback? Exactly. <laughs> and he is the biggest in the league. He's worse than Bryce Young. We cut somebody off. <laughs> Where were we? <laughs> oh, yeah. So just so just the fact that like you you still have to stop them, in theory, at some point. And them, the, yeah, them, the, the Steelers, and and in, this is the this kind of situation that comes up a lot, like right, like you're already at the eight yard line, and so you have as good, like, do you really think that if you get the ball, whatever, a minute from now, assuming you stop them and and call a couple of time, timeouts or whatever, like, are you going to get? You've already gotten most of the way there, right, to to scoring the touchdown. Like, you you have a lot of progress, and not to mention that if you kicked the field goal the expected field position for the sealers at that point is better than what you would give them if you missed on on this fourth down attempt so like right you make that field goal and you're giving them 17 yards of field position yeah i think i think there's like there's the upside of tying the game which is great and then the downside is you still have to figure out like either way either you field goal and you have to stop the Steelers, or you miss the fourth down and you have to stop them and at least if you if they're already starting from whatever their own eight, 10 yard line, then your situation is a lot better in terms of expected result from that point. If there was any, it would be in his own end zone. If there was any argument for trying to win the game in regulation mathematically, the model would have found it. The model's really good at finding ways to not like tying and avoiding overtime. And I'm sure James is going to write about when you're down by 10 and you score what you should do when you have that down by four, two point decision at some point. So like the, the model, the model does a great job of finding those examples for it to not find it here is <laughs> really, really telling. Like one of the best uses of the win probability model is not telling you to go for it in situations where you're on the edge and it tells you you have a 1% increase, which we'll get to, but it's, it's saving you from the really egregious ones. And if here, whatever made you think, oh yeah, this is the way to think about this. Like it, it was, it was pretty egregious. Cowardly, um, generous, all those words. There's there's no model involved. There, there had to have been zero model involved in any decision. You don't need a model at that point in time. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, it, exactly. You don't even need the yeah. model. But he I'm said, just, me, he said they kicked the, the field goal because they needed two scores to win. They do. What was bizarre, though, is they... Just he, two-point conversion? Early, or, oh, to early, win? 
to win. Early you do in, need to score. Early in the fourth quarter, they went for it on a fourth down and didn't get it. So he was like aggressive earlier in the fourth quarter in the same sort of scenario. Well, it is and then, in a really bizarre way. He's trying yeah. to win in regulation, right? <laughs> so it's totally unrealistic. Yeah, he's, he's trying to. Yeah, but it, that is. I do think it's kind of funny because yeah, he's he's he like trying to get into a two score game. <laughs> he's he's trying to he's trying to win in regulation, which is admirable because I think that teams no, he's often, not. Well, well, no, I mean that 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 has to be the argument, right? That's the only argument is that is that you if you think it's a two score game, that means like I think I need to score twice before the game runs out of time, and teams usually do the opposite, right? They play for overtime in a way that we wouldn't necessarily recommend. And this is the sort of... Segway! Yeah, it's <laughs> I, it's weird. So I said segue, so... Oh, sure. I'm going to segue into what you wrote about this week, Alex. Sure. The 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 down by 14 or two touchdowns, you got the two-point decisions, and now we saw the Packers do it. And you wrote a really interesting article on the 33rd because you sort of broke down the basics of why that makes sense from an analytical perspective. And then you looked at the specifics of this decision and you kind of came away saying, it was probably a good decision. <laughs> yeah. I, so I think that the trouble is that we get these like stylized examples in win probability land. And when you actually are faced with those circumstances, sometimes it doesn't line up with what you thought about originally. So like the sort of canonical thing with with the down by eight, question is basically like you're down by 14 points before you score a touchdown you score the touchdown and get down by eight and the math says that it's a pretty strong recommendation to go for two on that first after that first touchdown because basically you give yourself the opportunity to win in regulation and there's a pretty meaningful chance that you either are oh you they basically like you're in the exact same situation that you would be if you just kick two extra points well we recommend people look at the article yeah. on the 33rdteam.com, breaking it down because there are some flow charts on there that Alex made that I think are really helpful. But I think it, like as well as we can describe the base situation via audio, it's easy to picture. You're going to score two touchdowns. If you kick the extra points, let's just assume you make them, then you'll go into overtime. Your win probability would be 50% at that time. If we look the other way, we assume that you're going to score the two touchdowns. You go for two the first time, then that's sort of 25% of the the scenarios and you straight up win the game right there. Or sorry, it's it's 50% of the go for two scenarios. You'll straight up win the game because you're going to kick the extra point on your second touchdown like the Packers did. And if you miss the two-point conversion, you can still get it back. So you add in this extra 12.5% of win probability that really gives you a 62.5% chance of winning by the book, by the, as Alex calls it, canonical example. Yeah. So so the problem is that that is often talked about in the context of being up after that second touchdown and, and point after means you have virtual certainty to win the game. And what actually happened for the Packers in this situation is there was still like three minutes left in the game. So two, two minute warning, timeouts, whatever, like there was plenty of time for the Saints to respond. And so when you actually do the math for this particular circumstance, it ends up being much closer than the sort of straightforward example, which is basically like you win the game if you're up after those two touchdowns. So it was a lot closer than I think the that we typically think about when talking about this example, but it was still like a percentage point better. And so to think that like you 
can go with this not traditional path. And most of the time you end up in basically the same situation and you give yourself a little bit of upside. I think that it's still like a a sound decision. It's just not like the no brainer that I think some of the nerds might have thought about when looking at it. Yeah. Uh, It definitely surprised me when you broke down the actual numbers and and it does make sense. Like I was definitely aware this scored two touchdowns thing. If you're going to try this strategy, you better be pretty sure that there aren't like a lot of possessions left because you ba- it basically needs to be your second to last possession and your last possession for for the math to to work. But on the other side of it, they ended up scoring so quickly. They scored two touchdowns within four minutes, right? basically. So there's three minutes left. That's like, there's a lot of football left. Their win probability at that point wasn't all that high because a field goal beats them. So pretty fascinating, whether you're interested in it in the sense of, I don't understand this down by 14, go for two strategy. This article will explain it. And if you're also, I understand it, I know everything about go for two strategy, you'll read this and you'll be like, oh, damn, that was closer than I realized. Yeah. And I think it it does, it, it brings up the question, I suppose, of like how early is too early to think about going for two in that spot as opposed to just like taking sure points. And I don't think they were necessarily bordering on that. Like to your point, they got the ball back. Like they scored twice in very quick succession, which you can't necessarily guarantee. So I don't think that they were wrong to to go this route. But I do think that there's like a point at which there's no longer that same upside. Again, like there's just too many possessions left in the game, basically. Yeah, I'd rather go for two by default all the time and then have to decide when I want to kick. But I, I definitely remember, you know, man, when I was watching football as a kid, it was until there was the fourth quarter, definitely, and probably less than 10 minutes left in a game you weren't even allowed to think about a two-point conversion. It would it would be like even silly like scenarios where it's like you kick an extra point to still be down by one because there's 11 minutes left in the game and you didn't want to have that come back to haunt you. It, it, stuff that like, it's it's hard to, it's, it's like when they used to not shoot threes in basketball. It's like, well, what were they doing? Were they trying to win? Like, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this, this is more of like a loss aversion thing than the three-point shooting thing. It's like it's exactly what you're saying. Like, you don't want something to come back to haunt you. But at the same time, you could be like, oh, I could come back to be like, oh, that actually worked out awesome. Yeah. <laughs> like, there is basically a 50% chance of either of those outcomes. And with enough time left in the game, like the fact that you missed the first time can be made up for. I got one for you, Alex and, and, and Brett. This act, I think the actual analogy here for me is more... In baseball and relief pitchers, I can't remember if we've said this before, but it became obvious at some point in the last couple of decades that if you don't use your relief pitchers, then you, they don't they they're, they don't pitch. For example, if you're in a tie game and it's and it's this, the ninth inning, put your damn closer in because you could wait until you don't get the opportunity to use your best pitcher or, or not. And so, like, yes, you might. Oh, with the 13th inning, we really wish we had our closer, but you wouldn't be in the 13th inning if you didn't use your closer. <laughs> so there's a little bit of that aspect to it too, where it's just like, you can't worry about what isn't until you've done the the first thing. And the trend in baseball too is like, now it's even more matchup based too, where like they'll bring their best reliever in, in the seventh or eighth, if it's the one, two, three in the lineup and that they're, those are the, you know, the most threats that they have. So no, definitely uh, same type of thinking. Yeah. Like, you got to use your powers. You can't, you can't save those cards like it's magic to gather. <laughs> Play that Black Lotus first turn. Can't be waiting. On that note, we will sign off and get out of here for the Jab Mats. James Weaver, Bryce Rossler, and Alex Vigderman, along with our injury expert, Brett Barnes. This has been the Off the Charts Football Podcast. 
Thank you. Please check out our work on sportsinfosolutions.com, the33rdteam.com, and always on Twitter or X at sportsinfo underscore SIS. We'll talk to you next week.